This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So we're going to dig into crypto in the next 30 minutes here on Bloomberg Business Week. First up, uh, the CEO of Colonial Pipeline, Joseph Blount, he was testifying before the Senate Homeland Security Committee today. He apologized big time for the ransomware attack that shuttered the nation's largest fuel pipeline. We know it paralyzed the East Coast flow of gasoline, diesel and jet fuel. Check it out. It was the hardest decision I've made in my 39 years in the energy industry. And I know how critical our pipeline is to the country and I put the interests of the country first. I kept the information closely held because we were concerned about operational safety and security, and we wanted to stay focused on getting the pipeline back up and running. I believe with all my heart, it was the right choice to make. A major mea culpa there. Of course, that's the Colonial Pipeline CEO, Joseph Blount, testifying earlier today before the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Let's get right into it with Carter K. Marotra, cybersecurity reporter here at Bloomberg News, joining us on the line from San Francisco. Carter K., what did, what did we learn from the CEO of Colonial Pipeline today about the ransomware attack that we didn't know? So one of the, the biggest details uh, about this hack, something that he disclosed today, but also disclosed to us uh, late last week is that the actual attack was the result of a stolen password uh, for a, uh, an account into a VPN that had been hacked and, and uh, put on the dark web months ago. So it was, it was not a complex campaign. There wasn't a, uh, you know, a solar wind type of vulnerability here that resulted in this uh, devastating attack. It was a very simple uh, loss of a password that resulted in this exploitation and ultimately the $4.4 million ransom payment that we all learned yesterday, uh, much of which was clawed back. Okay, so I have to just, just jump in here, Carter K, because I know you're a cybersecurity reporter. I assume that you know how to keep your account secure, at least as, as we can <laughs> as consumers. <laughs> Two-factor authentication? Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was no multi-factor authentication on that particular VPN, that virtual private network. So uh, that is that is sort of ground zero for security right now. Uh, enterprise networks, corporate networks, your personal account, you should turn on multi-factor authentication. It means that a single password is not enough for you to log into your device. You need a one-time password or a second form of verification to ensure that you are who you are when you're logging in. It'll keep everyone a lot safer. All right. But now we've got blockchain explorers. We're talking about this a lot, right? Uh, a crypto search engine, essentially, to quite literally follow the money of these things. Does this mean we now have the tools to kind of uh, investigate any future cyber attacks here that require ransomware? Sort of. Uh, mm. It sort of means that. Um, so. Yes, the technology has existed to track some currencies in uh, blockchain. Bitcoin, for sure, uh, can be tracked, especially by law enforcement and, and some private companies that specialize in this. Um, so if you know exactly how much was paid, um, be it a, a criminal transaction or 
you sending money to, to your family member, you can go and follow the money, literally follow the money. Uh, and that's what law enforcement did after um, Colonial Pipeline paid Darkside, a ransomware group, $4.4 million or 75 Bitcoin um, about a month ago. They followed the money and were able to, to see exactly where it was parked in a digital crypto wallet and take some of it back. Um, and that's a big deal. And that's something that law enforcement has done in the past. But what's mm-hmm. unique here is that is that the actual victim, Colonial Pipeline, disclosed the fact that they had been hacked. And that does not happen very often. Uh, victims of ransomware don't want the public to know they've been compromised because of uh, a variety of security issues, board issues, stock price issues. And so they keep it quiet. In this case, Colonial came out and said it. They got the help of the FBI. They got some of their money back. So does this undermine the crypto world as we've come to know it, at least the kind of illegitimate or, or, you know, where there might be um, cyber attacks and ransomware incidents? I don't know. Undermine might be strong, but I, okay. I think there's definitely an issue uh, about the economic backbone of cybercrime, and that is cryptocurrency for sure. There are regulations, not just in the U.S., but but in Europe. Know your consumer uh, regulations that would require or do require um, people on exchanges to share some details about who you are. They're just rarely administered. If one knows who is investing or buying cryptocurrency at a certain period of time, that would make it easier for law enforcement to follow criminals who are using it to commit cybercrime. Uh, I think the fundamental issue here isn't the use of cryptocurrency to promote cybercrime. It's the fact that cybercriminals have been able to target poorly protected networks for years mm-hmm. and have made off like gangbusters for quite some time and are are getting more brazen in their campaign. Well, Cartier, just in the last 30 seconds, what are you hearing in your reporting, seeing in your reporting, hearing from sources about the way that cybersecurity companies and CSOs are, are reacting to this in the last month and how they're preparing for the next one? Well, I think the reality is that what we're seeing now is what these uh, security companies have been dealing with for years. Right. What's changed is that the Colonial Pipeline hack allowed the general public to understand what's at stake. When gas mm-hmm. supplies for the for the Northeast were cut off for a period of time, yeah. that right. finally resonated with the public. And now we know what's happening. Hopefully utilities, the government, right. the private companies are going to prioritize this going forward. Well, and if you've got crypto, better put it in a cold wallet. That's all we're going to say. Cartier Marotra, thank you so much. Cybersecurity reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in San Francisco. Mike McLone, commodity strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been on the road. He's back home here in our interactive broker studio. Hello there. Hello, Carol and so Tim. You, you guys are the dream team. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're not going to argue with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll take um, it. Crypto, though, kind of not the, the the dream currencies, it feels like today. They're down, a lot of them. You were at this big event in Miami. Yeah. Set the stage of what was going on. Well, I like to describe it. It was like a Woodstock because this kind of conference will never be repeated. It was the first big conference on the planet where there was no... No masks, everybody was there, and the subject was quite unique, Bitcoin. So it was that sense there, it was packed, wall to wall, the main ex- main presentation room, they were pushing people away, standing room only. And then when you walk into exhi- ex- you know, the exhibit room where you mm-hmm. have all the desks and everything, you can right away, you walk and you feel that heat of people, and it's hard to get through. And then the lines for the men's room are for, forever. But there was that sentiment all about, there's so many people doing good. Yeah. And so I get the thought, okay, is this the peak? Or is this mainstream? In my sense, it's more mainstream. Now, we see it down today, 
But there were so many cool things that really came out of it that we can touch on. Yeah, well, what was it specifically about the the conference that made you think it was more mainstream than peak? The people I met and what, so I walked by one of my friends, he was standing next to a guy from a major accounting firm. And then I met, you know, someone I knew who used to be in ETFs. And another one, another group I met was a a trust bank. So trust Um, bank, ETF, and and, accounting. And then a lot of miners. I met with a lot of miners, and some of them were some of the most respectable people I ever met. One of them was a miner, I'll end on this. He got into Bitcoin only because because he needed he, his 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 position was providing power and energy, and he needed to manage that flow. And when he had excess power, he said, "Okay, I'll just use Bitcoin to offset that mining Bitcoin, to offset that excess power." So what what? Where does it go in your view? We've had the conversations about it being a collectible, right? We've talked about yeah. that. So yeah. where does it go? Is it that we have multiple cryptocurrencies? Yeah. Is it again about blockchain? Like, where do you see it all going? Well, to me, that's the key thing of the conference. Bitcoin is a collectible, and then there's 10,000 wannabes. <laughs> um, there is on coinmarketcap.com. Actually, 10,333 at the moment. Um, and last year, that's that was a 5,000. So there you go. Yeah. Massive excess of supply, ease of entry, rules of economics does not favor higher prices. But it's the number two that I liked bringing up a lot, Ethereum. You know, that's that lesson from Frederick Douglass. You say, just agitate. So I tried to agitate. And behind the scenes, everybody I mentioned Ethereum, so it was all positive about it. But on stage, it wasn't a good idea to mention because it was all about Bitcoin. So that's the cool thing about mm-hmm. Bitcoin. That it's you know it's banking the unbanked. The key quote out of the conference was, you know, two thirds of the people on the planet don't have bank accounts. Forty percent of them have cell phones or smartphones, and they can get Bitcoin and cryptos on their phones. And what's happening lately with this, you know, what you saw with this. Um, that finding these funds from the colonial hack, that's nothing new. And I can dig into that. Like the MC of the conference, he got into, um, initially got into Bitcoin from buying drugs on Silk Road, which was busted by the feds because they just tracked the transactions. But this is what got all the attention in you know, 2012, 2013, 2014 yeah. when it came to, to the cryptocurrency. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you, you, in your report outlining this event, summarizing this event, you asked the question, what problem does Bitcoin solve? What was the answer that you found and potentially how it changed at the conference? That was a question I have answered distinctly um, with, I'll answer it first with, I go straight to the British Museum. I think of the Hoxney Hoard. It's one of my mm. favorite things to visit there. Mm-hmm. It's the largest hoard of precious metals ever found on the planet. It was from the Roman times. You picture yourself, you're a Roman leader. It's collapsing. The locals don't like you. You need to get out and hide your wealth. They never came back to find it. And you figure, I figure, okay, he probably did a moonlit light night. And he probably, he had to do it himself because if you have a servant do it, a servant will either find it, come back and get, or tell someone else or kill, you know, you have to. But right. the point is, it's that wealth to be able to transmit, transport, and transact in wealth a certain amount of, well, and put it, store it someplace 24-7, be able to do it on a cell phone or on a phone or in your head, it's never been possible in time. So that's the problem it solves. It's banking the unbanked. So here's the latest I'll leave you with. El Salvador has already said they might adopt it as a currency. You know what's happened in El Salvador in the last 30 years? Right, Wars, cur- currency yeah. collapsing. Yeah. And if you have something to can base against like Bitcoin, it's like a gold, not like a dollar, then it can help solve that problem. 10 seconds. So at some point in our life, will we all have some Bitcoin in our portfolio or what have you or access to it? I think so. I think so. Because if we don't, it's becoming, it's kind of like a, a digital version of gold and the world's going digital and Bitcoin is the first in that space. Oh my God. Mike, right. can you just stay for like another 60 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow to be continued. Mike McGlone, commodity strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence in our interactive broker studio. So as Tim and I mentioned at the top, it feels like our digital world continues to get poked at. We get reminded of the potential holes in that world. Doesn't it feel that way a little it bit? It certainly felt that way at about 6 a.m. this morning. Oh. 
Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. So I, as, as anyone who was online earlier today trying to go to any common website might have found that they were unable to reach that website. It New York websites Times. Like the New York Times. Our own Bloomberg.com was affected by this. Um, in fact, British government websites affected by it as well. Yeah. So let's get into this because Fastly, which helps push data quickly around the internet, said that it had fixed the issue that caused that global outage. And I just think we're learning more about, we just take so many things for granted. So let's bring in why we maybe shouldn't. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst Mandeep Singh. Uh, let's see what he has to say about it. He's back in our Interactive Brokers studio. So nice to have you in studio. So I just take it for granted. I go online. If there's not a problem, I think there's something wrong with my phone or my service. This was different. What happened? Well, in this case, it was an outage. An outage could be caused by a number of reasons. It could be you know, them making a code change, which they moved to production and that caused an outage. Or it could be a breach or, you know, any sort of a cyber attack. I mean, we've seen so many different types of attacks that at this point, it's hard to say that, you know, one company has a software that can protect you against all kinds of attacks. And that is what we're seeing. Well, who is Fastly? What does Fastly do? So Fastly is like, uh, an interface that lives between uh, the website you're trying to access, let's say a Pinterest or an Amazon.com. So this is a caching service that sits between the user when they request a URL. Right. And they basically authenticate the user to say, this is not a bot, this is a real user. This is somebody who's trying to access Amazon and it's a legitimate user based on the IP address. Now, what they do is they have these data centers across the world. So no matter where you are accessing a website mm -hmm. from, they will make sure you will have a good experience. Even if you are somewhere in Africa or you know uh, Brazil or any other country, you will have the same kind of experience because they have data centers across the globe, which is why these popular platforms use this CDN service because of the caching mechanism, the security. It works. And all. Right? It works. Keeps it secure. Yeah. Well, I, I think one thing that was particularly striking about this morning's outage was the fact that it was so widespread. Why did it affect websites that don't range normally go down? Too. That don't normally go down, but range from government websites to, to media properties. So the websites didn't go down. It's just that when you were trying to access the website, those websites weren't accessible because Fastly, like I said, sits between the time when you try to access a URL to the time it hits the server of that end website, be it an Amazon or a Pinterest. So really the caching field, which is why you couldn't access that but, website. But they were, those, those websites became inaccessible because Correct. they use Fastly as a client, or they are clients of Fastly's, right? They, they are clients of Fastly. So they, an easy way for us to figure out who pays what CDN was to figure out who was down this morning. Yes, that's one way because these were the common thread was these all these websites were using Fastly as a CDN, which is why these vex websites became inaccessible. I do wonder about redundancy here, and it's a question that I asked you earlier on yeah. Quick Take because you you do wonder if if something like this can take down such a or I shouldn't say take down make unavailable such a large number of websites. Why isn't there redundancy in place? So the redundancy can be Amazon or Pinterest can say we want to use Fastly CDN as well as Cloudflare or any other CDN provider because Fastly is just one of the CDN providers. Having redundancy within Fastly isn't gonna solve the problem. Like Fastly obviously made a code change that affected their entire CDN service. Having, I, I think, something that 
was redundant wouldn't have helped in this case. Yes, as a large company, you can use multiple CDN providers, but then at the end of the day, you have to judge like them based on the uptime. So in this particular case, if you are using one CDN, which is Fastly, you can't use an alternative CDN. You can flip the switch, but it, it's going to take time, right? You can't have two going at the same yeah, time is basically have, what you're yeah. saying. So it's like a backup battery. You still have to make the switch. Exactly, and, and that will take time. So you will have a 30-second or one-minute outage at least, you know, or if not half an hour, which was the case here. It doesn't feel like the, this kind of incident, an outage, happens often. Is that fair? So Cloudflare, which is a competitor of Fastly, also had a similar outage last year. Okay. And that was just a one-off. So after that, no one cared about Somebody it. Somebody hit a People button were, wrong. Somebody was drinking coffee and like spilled it on a button. What I happened? Mean, these companies <laughs> make changes to their code okay. literally every week. Now, you don't know because we are in an environment where, you know, things are so interconnected that developers don't always realize what they are changing. And, right. uh, you know, in this case, uh, I'm sure there will be a postmortem as to why that code was moved. It just seems like a major, like, I mean, these are major sites. Yeah. I mean, I'm not just saying because it's Bloomberg, major site though, too. <laughs> but I mean, we're talking about the UK government. We're talking about the, new, like, these are things that people just expect to be well, there. Well, I was watching the equity market reaction as this was playing out. And in pre-market trading, Fastly was taking a serious tumble. I mean, it was down four or five percent at, at yeah. a certain point you look right now it's higher by nine percent what gives well in this case i i think there is an acknowledgement from the investors that look there are only three or four companies that provide this cdn service yeah we and they learned are, that today didn't we they are running critical infrastructure so suddenly everyone knows about fastly previously fastly was in the background it was a background service that no one really, it wasn't a household name. Suddenly it is, and it's providing a very important service. It reminds me of, I remember the Bloomberg story years ago where people were like, if you were streaming, I want to say, I don't know, Sopranos, I can't remember what it was. You were streaming such and such last night and watching it. You were doing it through an Amazon server. Like all of a sudden we learned about Amazon Web Services yeah. and just the streaming world. And I feel like that's what's happening with Fastly. Because you said there's only three or four companies that do this. Yes, yes. And look, at, at the end of the day, an outage can happen to any company. It happened yeah. to Netflix, it happened to Amazon. I think in this case, they fixed it quickly. I'm sure they'll have to give a reason as to what happened, but most likely it will be a code change and investors will move on and they say, they'll be like, yeah, this is important. Yeah. Mindeep, we talked about the Colonial Pipeline hack earlier today uh, on, on this show. And I think a lot of people's brains went right to mm -hmm. a hack. What does that say about the environment that we're in? Well, right now, there is a lot of state-sponsored activity going on, given, you know, what's going on with China, Russia. And these hackers are very sophisticated. They've got deep pockets. So they are trying to find every possible vulnerability point. And we should note, there's no indication at this point that this was any sort of nefarious activity. This one. This one, yeah. We, we don't know. I think the company will come out. If there was a hack, they will come out. Otherwise, you know, you will see a big tumble of the for the stock. Yeah, yeah. Right. I was just going to say, we still don't know exactly yeah. what happened. Or right. if, again, somebody spilled their cup of coffee or, you know. <laughs> um, fascinating world we're living in. Like I said, it just feels like our digital world. It's like poking holes. Or maybe we're getting a clearer picture of how it all works. Mandeep, thank you. Explain it all so well. Mandeep Singh, the senior tech industry analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our interactive broker studio. 
Wild world, huh? Yeah, wild world. <laughs> All right, it is time for the Bloomberg Big Take. It's on our radar, Biogen's news, Tim, of the FDA granting approval of the company's Alzheimer's drug. And it looks like, man, there's some longer-term repercussions out of this. Yeah, there certainly are. Way. Joining us now is Bob Langreth, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. So, Bob, for people who haven't been following this space as closely as you have, take us back a couple of years about the bet that Biogen made on the drug that was approved by regulators yesterday. Yeah, so all you know, researchers have been trying to design a drug to target the pathology behind Alzheimer's disease uh, for decades, and drug after drug after drug has failed. Uh, and Biogen's drug just you know, two years ago looked like it'd be just the latest in a long line of failures. They stopped their trials early. They said they didn't look like they were going to work. And then eight months later, they shocked everyone. Uh, they they said they reanalyzed the data and looked like one of the trials that may have worked. And we're going to apply for approval. Changed our mind. We're going to apply for approval, and we think get this drug approved. And then it's been super controversial since then, and uh, there's a lot of debate whether this drug works, but yesterday you know, the FDA approved it, and then the Biogen priced it at a very high price, uh, and now there's going to be a lot of controversy going forward over, over who should get this drug and you know whether it works at all. Well, and you've been covering this, what Biogen has been up to with Alzheimer's. You also, for those who are loyal listeners and watchers of uh, Bloomberg, you, Bob, have been keeping us up to speed when it has uh, to do with COVID treatments and COVID vaccines. There's been Mm -hmm. many cover stories by Bob Langreth at Business Week magazine. What's interesting, though, about Biogen, Bob, is that it seems to be, as you guys and you specifically report, that the approval, the FDA approval, appears to signal a fundamental shift in the way the agency thinks about Alzheimer's disease, and this could have have lasting ramifications, as you report, for other drugs, whether it's over at Eli Lilly, Roche, and elsewhere. Yeah. So uh, for for years, drug companies, including Biogen, have been trying to prove that a drug for Alzheimer's would actually slow cognitive decline. And it's been really, really hard to do. No one's really gotten clear evidence. And Biogen's drugs, their two trials, didn't really prove it either because one essentially failed to prove it. The other was still controversial because it was stopped early. It showed a very potentially a very small effect in slowing cognitive decline. And uh, no one could agree, you know, what to make out of it. And so what happened is the FDA has faced a lot of pressure from patient groups, the Alzheimer's Association, to approve this drug. They were saying there's nothing out there. We need something. We're willing to take some uncertainty, accept some uncertainty. And what they decided to do is they, they essentially, in a surprise, they did not rule on a, make a verdict on whether this drug slowed causes decline or not. Basically, the FDA said, we're going to approve it because it removes these amyloid plaques in the brain. It changes some of this, changes some of this fundamental fundamental pathology, and we think that that is likely to have a reasonable expectation that it'll do something good in terms of patient outcomes in the future, but we're going to have to wait for future trials to prove that it does. So that that was a big surprise. That's a big change. It is a big change, and a reasonable expectation that it will actually have a positive result is not necessarily proof in a clinical trial that it Mm. does. And I wonder how this changes the way that the FDA approves therapies moving forward, especially at a time where there's so much skepticism around federal agencies in the wake of what happened with COVID. Yeah, so this this uh, this this approval is going to be very controversial. Uh, you know, some people are all already saying you know, uh, that, that that it was a mistake, uh, and uh, this could you know could set a precedent for other kind of neurological diseases, other neuro- neurological drugs, and other drugs for Alzheimer's. Because now they've said for Alzheimer's, you don't have to prove that a drug slows cognitive decline to get a to get on the market, you just have to show some evidence it does something to brain pathology, even though there's a great controversy over whether that brain 
pathology, right. how well it correlates with cognitive decline. So right. that, that's, it's a big deal. Right. So, you know, not a cure. We get that, right? But maybe in some ways, like, and you do wonder if the FDA is kind of allowing a little bit of wiggle room with some of these things, because maybe there's a little bit of improvement, or maybe there's a lot of improvement, you know, or at least stemming the degradation, right, Bob, you know, in some patients. Yeah, so the way to think about this, this is not a drug. Even in the absolute best case scenario, under the you know the most optimistic projection, it will not stop the decline. People right. are still declining steadily, but maybe, maybe, maybe it slows it a little bit. Uh, and that's what they're saying. That uh, that's what the Alzheimer's patients that I talk to want. They're saying, you know, there's nothing out there. We want something of this. You know, may slow the decline a little bit, and this is good enough. We're willing to take some uncertainty and improve it now, and that's. What happened? So you know, it's, it's very controversial and very interesting. But it's funny because there's a. I'm going to talk about a stock gainer later, um, Casava Sciences, and they've had no products in the market for 20 years, but apparently they're working on an early stage Alzheimer's drug, and I think are getting a bit of a pop because of what happened specifically with Biogen's drug. So it is making everybody look, especially when it comes to Alzheimer's, Bob, a little bit differently at the space and ter- and in terms of treatments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other stocks are going up. Eli Lilly went up yesterday because they have a similar Alzheimer's drug and just going into phase three trials. So they went up on the prospects. They might be able to get an approval sooner. Uh, so so no no question there is, uh, you know, potential uh, ramifications, you know, across the industry. Bob, $56,000 for a course of this. It's just a massive amount of money. Uh what typically happens with a drug price? Does it go down after a few years? Just got about 30 seconds here, Bob. <laughs> no, the drug prices, I mean, as far as, uh, as far as as far as we can tell, basically never go down. Uh, they promise not to raise it, but what, what I can say is there's at least a million people in the U.S. who could theoretically qualify for this drug, cost $50,000 a year, do that math. If everyone in that, that theoretical group gets Jeez. it, that's $50 billion. Wow. And you talk about expensive brain scans and then to administer the infusions. Uh, It's not an inexpensive process. Hey, Bob, though, um, thanks for just digging deeper into this to explain why, though, it has been so significant. We've certainly seen the stock pop yesterday, a little bit of a pullback in today's trade when it comes to Biogen, but uh, definitely watching it. Bob Langreth, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New Jersey. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, TikTok, everyone. 13, no, not 13, 10 and a half minutes left. I'm just adding a few minutes onto the trading day. Uh, 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading day. It's kind of a meh kind of day, not really going anywhere. So let's see what Eric Jackson has to say. He's founder and president of EMJ Capital. It's a Toronto-based hedge fund, and he joins us on the phone in Toronto. So good to have you back. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you, Carol? Doing well. Tim and I are hanging in there. The world's reopening. Uh, we're trying to make sense of here we are. We've got U.S. stocks near a record. You've got, if you look at the global market indices, we're hovering near records. How do you see this market environment right now? Well, um, you guys are just talking about inflation, and obviously everyone's waiting for a few you know, more shoes to drop and to kind of better get a sense of where things are going. But if you look in the tech world specifically, we've had 
such a reduction in uh, a lot of the multiples across the tech universe that you're really being, um, you know, you're able to get into a lot of names in tech at, um, you know, oftentimes pre-pandemic multiples. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're getting some protection no matter kind of what happens through the, through the rest of the year with the with all the inflation data that comes. So mm. that's not that's not across the board. I, okay. I think this, a lot of the SaaS stocks are still expensive, but um, a, a lot of things are attractive. Like? Like? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> in general, I, you know, I think the FANG names are, are definitely, uh, they've sort of been in a one-year uh, trade trading range, uh, and their multiples are extremely low. I, th- I think they are all attractive. I think, um, for me, uh, there are... Uh, a few names that I like in particular. There's one stock uh, which I which I recently got into called Magnite. Uh, the ticker is MGNI, and uh, basically they serve up the ads that go into connected TVs, uh, which people are increasingly turning to. Um, it's not just a Facebook and, and Google world in terms of serving ads when you turn on Roku or your, your Samsung TV or whatever, and so uh, a lot of people are familiar with a company called the Trade Desk, mm-hmm. which uh, does serves the same kind of ads from the demand side, meaning they work with the agencies. But uh, Magnite is a sort of an amalgam of three different companies that has been put put together over the last year that works on the supply side, and it trades at half the multiple. Um, Eric, you mentioned shoe dropping, other shoes dropping when it comes to inflation. What would those be? Well, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we're speaking on a day when uh, 10 years dropped um that's been you know met been met with a sigh of relief i think by a lot of tech investors um you know we got ourselves all you know wound up over the last month or so um for you know with fears that that you know that the tenure was just going to bust through uh you know to new highs and above two percent and all this kind of stuff uh because of some of the hot inflation numbers that we're seeing so you know in the, in the meantime you know lumber's cooled off some of the commodities have cooled off you know that's good for Tech obviously in these growth stocks, uh, where you know you're 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 looking out multiple years and so forth, um, and so we we just need to continue to monitor you know where things go from here. Is it truly really transitory inflation data, um, or is it something more permanent? Hey, listen. One thing I want to ask you is uh, Liz Kaplan McCormick and Rich Miller have a story on the Bloomberg, and we're going to talk about it with our TV team in just a, a moment on Beyond the Bell. The economist who helped change the way the Fed assesses long-run inflation expectations says their current level means the central bank needs to start laying the groundwork for shrinking its massive bond buying program. And this is specifically, we're talking about Brian Sack. He was uh, at the Fed uh, Board of Governors almost two decades ago, and he was head of monetary and financial market analysis. He championed the use of a forward measure of inflation expectations to help guide policy. He's now over at D.E. Shaw. He says the so-called five-year five-year forward break-even inflation rate has climbed to a level where further increases would be problematic for the central bank. So when you have someone like that who really understands this, you know, and, and you know, created a tool used by the Fed to predict inflation or at least get an idea of where it's going, and when he says maybe it's time that the Fed changes policy, how do you factor something like that in? Here's a smart guy who understands it, understands what's going on. Do you say, wait, this is a different market environment or what? Well, I I mean, I think one of the interesting things, you you go back a couple of weeks ago when people were were really worried about um, inflation across the equity universe. I I think, uh, you know, you know, you could say that um, you know the, the Fed had given this language that they were going to stay low for so long, and um, I, I think 
the concern was that, um, you know, are, are they really out of step with other central banks around the world uh, who are starting to, to taper? And, I, you know, what's, what's been interesting is that, um, you know, the Fed hasn't really changed, but there have been a couple of statements that have come out that have sort of talked about their openness to tapering. And I think just the fact that that has gone out there, along with, uh, you know, softer commodity inflation and numbers and so forth, I think that's given people a lot of comfort that, you know, the Fed's not out of touch. Uh, they sort of see what's going on. They're going to taper if they need to later this year. And I, I think part of the reason behind the, um, the tenure dropping has just been uh, a comfort with, uh, with the fact that they're not, you know, that they don't have their head in the sand. So, so what happens if we do start to see signs of inflation that you think isn't necessarily transitory? What do you do specifically to get defensive? Well, I mean, inflation is not good for, for all, you know, any, any stock, really. I mean, people like to say, you know, get defensive, do this, do that, and go into value. I mean, all stocks will go down. If we're truly, you know, back into this, you know, um, permanent inflation era. So, you know, I don't think any of us want to see that, um, you know, and, there, and there's obviously a big, you know, a big, a big uh, spectrum between where we are now and, and something like that. Uh, so, I try to look for, um, you know, when I'm specifically looking at in the tech universe, tech stocks are, are most uh, variable with in, in inflation news and most prone to like big dramatic pullbacks. Uh, and, and really, that's, that's why, even though we're at market highs, in the one corner of the universe in, in, in stocks that has really you know, been hurt in the first half of this year has been the growth um, tech area mm-hmm. so much. So I, I think you, you know, there are still a lot of interesting um, you know, tech, tech names that are, are more value-ish plays. And so um, you know, I'm looking, looking at names like that. Uh, and uh, you know, cash is always a great position. Uh, in those kinds of environments too. Hey, one more minute left here. Um, we always love talking names with you. Hello, Fresh, uh, which is a delivery service based over in Berlin. Uh, you like them? How come? Everyone says, you know, oh, it's time to get out of the, the pandemic stocks, get into the value, you know, oriented stocks. Like that's sort of like a, a cliche these days. Um, you know, and, it, and if, there, if there ever was a poster child for a pandemic stock, it was probably HelloFresh last year, as people stayed home and they ordered these meal kits. Uh, but what's interesting is if, you, is, is if you go beneath the surface, uh, this is still a very, uh, you know, small, you know, potential uh, market that's been penetrated in terms of U.S. households and global households who, who use these meal kits. And um, they didn't have to do any marketing last year uh, because there was such high demand. Now you've pro- you're probably seeing their TV ads all over the place. Some people say, well, it's not a sticky customer, a lot churn out. That's true, but... Uh, a big chunk of those new customers that come on board, um, you know, about 20%, stick around for the long haul. And this is a profitable biz- business. It's just getting started. They can move into but, adjacent meals and grocery delivery areas as well. Um, very smart management team. Eric, very briefly, even past pandemic, when we go out and we go to the stores again and we go to restaurants? Well, you know, they're, you know, right now their competition is, are you going to pick up your meal at the grocery store on the way home and, yeah. and cook, you know, and heat it up for yourself? Or are you going to go out to dinner tonight or whatever? And, you know, a lot of people are still going to have to, you know, get something for dinner on their way home. Uh, that's who they really are going after. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, always good to get some time with you. Really appreciate it. Uh, Eric Jackson, he's founder and president of EMJ Capital, joining us on the phone from Toronto. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.